Welcome to The Trail Ahead, conversations at the intersection of race, environment, history, culture, and the outdoors. We're your hosts, Addie and Faith. We bring on folks from all walks of life to have real, authentic, messy dialogue that can lead to tangible change. Talking about the outdoors and representation of all these issues is personal. It's personal, it's political, it's professional, and it's intimate. That was the voice of our guest this week, Dr. Carolyn Finney. She's a speaker, a thinker, a connector, an author, and someone we deeply admire. So this episode starts with us basically fangirling in the most real way. We hope you enjoy this week as much as we do. Carolyn Finney, thank you so much for being here with us. I'm going to begin by just saying that um, I honestly don't know when I first got a copy of your book, Black Faces, White Spaces, in my hands. And I don't know if I've um, adequately praised you, honestly, for how much that book changed my life and my trajectory personally um, in terms of why I switched from kind of separately talking about representation and separately talking about the environment, but like really learning why it was so important to pull those things together. So we are so, so thankful that you're here with us today. I'm so, so thankful that we've since become friends. That was like so unexpected and wonderful. Um, So thank you for being here with us. Yes. Thank you, Faith and Addie um, for having me on the show. And thank you for saying that about the book. And I don't know. Thank you for doing what it is that you do, because it, it, you know, I can say something really corny about what it means, you know, to have so many of us out there having these conversations in diverse ways, which is true. But it's also just personally, really, uh, the word is not satisfying, but it's personally affirming. That's what it is. Personally affirming to feel that, you know, as much as I talk about this thing, I work on this thing and people may label me as being an quote unquote expert. I don't like using that that kind of language to talk about, you know, how we know what we know and what it means and how much we know. I don't even know what I'm saying right now. I guess what I want to say is it's affirming just as a singular person, as a singular black person, as a singular black woman who has spent time and spends time in nature in the outdoors, who has just ultimately wanted to feel that I'm reflected in the stories and everyone who looks like me is reflected in ways, in the diverse ways we show up in the outdoors. So you're doing that work. You both are doing that work. And I'm really grateful uh, that we can be in conversation about it. Well, you know, for anybody listening, what's the things to say? I say that I'm uh, from New York, even though I haven't lived in New York for probably 30 years, but I'll always be a New Yorker. That's where I was born and raised. I like to say that I, the way that I do this work in the world, I look at issues of belonging and identity and race and difference and power and privilege and the environment and nature and story and representation. But And I stand at an intersection in order to, to, to do that because I was an actor for the better part of 11 years. I mean, I started acting, you know, but from the time I was 14 and I professionally started when I was around 19. And so for me, that's a very much a part of my personality, the theater and performance. I then spent the better part of five years backpacking in different parts of the world. I did, it started out with a six month backpacking trip around the world. And then I'd come back and save money for a year and then spend six months in Africa and then come back and save more money. And then I ended up in Nepal eventually for a year and a half. And that backpacking in that time in the late eighties and early nineties is 
one of the things that has most, you know, pushed me to where I'm standing now that informs me and that shows up here because I would read a ton of books about people crossing deserts and climbing mountains and backpacking around the world and doing all these things. And I never saw anyone who looked like me. And that was always disturbing and a little scary and sometimes just curious for me. I was, I didn't understand it. Cause I knew, I said, I know I'm not the first one, you know, I can't be, you know, so why isn't there anybody out there who looks like me? And so when I returned to school, I returned to school and ended up getting three degrees, which wasn't the plan. I was, but I, I did it in part because I thought, let me see what else I need to know because I lacked in a certain amount of confidence to think about how I might write and put myself out in the world in these conversations. And I thought I was really going to do international development. I mean, that was it. I was looking at gender and international development issues. And I ended up shifting by the time I got to my doctorate to geography and eventually thinking about African-Americans and environment at home, meaning here in the U.S. But I'm not an academic, you know, so I have all those academic degrees and they've sort of helped me move forward. But I made a decision a few years ago to sort of step away from that as the primary way to introduce myself. Because I actually want to be like most people, which is, you know, I want to tap into all the ways I kind of know the world. And I guess the final thing I will say is that I live in Burlington, Vermont, because I do a part-time, I'm a part-time artist in residence at Middlebury College in the Franklin Environmental Center. And it's kind of a relationship where they kind of support me doing the work I do in the world, which is speaking with people, writing about this, consulting, facilitating, all the ways that I can be in conversation continue on my own journey of how to express the stories of my family, the stories of people I meet, um, the stories of who we are collectively as it relates to nature and the environment more broadly. And oh my God, what kind of introduction was that? No, that was, (laughs) it's awesome. (laughs) That was an amazing introduction. (laughs) And I wanted to also echo Faith and just say, Carolyn, Thank you for being here with us. And and I have also deeply admired you and your work and your writing for years. And fr- it was from Faith that I heard about your book and your work and, and honestly a foundation for the conversation, for the interracial dialogue that Faith and I started informally in cars to trailheads and climbing crags. And now we happen to be recording them for the world to hear. So thank you for laying such a foundation and for being such a path-breaking person in this world. I mean, it's been, it's incredible to follow your work and it's an honor to talk to you. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We, we have a question. I'm excited to ask you this because we ask every guest that comes on the podcast this question. And I already have a sense that your answer will be very interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you what playing outside means to you. Ooh. Ooh. Well, okay, that is an interesting question. So because I can never answer anything simply, um, playing outside makes me think of a couple of things. It makes me think about myself as a child and what it meant um, growing up on this estate that my parents were responsible for caring for. And so literally playing outside, making up games like uh you know, I made up a game that the driveway was a piranha river and, you know, just making up these games and running around literally in the grass and in the woods. So that's one image of it. Playing outside also sort of gets my back up a little bit, I guess, because I think about, you know, 
where playing outside, you know, for some may be this idea of being out in this really sublime nature in a very particular way. And I'm like, the minute I step outside my door, I'm outside. So it, it actually doesn't matter where I am. So I could be playing outside in the city on a city street, and that's still playing outside, even if I don't have any fancy equipment or in some beautiful natural surrounding in order to do it. What it means to me to be able to play outside implies a kind of freedom. It implies a kind of liberation, and it implies a kind of imagination. And so to really be able to play, no matter how old you are, no matter where you live, no matter what it is you look like, there's something when you watch somebody who's really playing, you know, they just seem at peace and happy and free and open. And that's, you know, for me, the ultimate playing outside. It means that you're not thinking about all the other stuff in the world that we have to contend with on a daily basis as a human being. It means that you feel secure enough and confident enough to just be where you are in the moment, to be present with everything that is around you. It means that perhaps it is when we are most ultimately connected to the larger universe, right, and who we are. And when I think about all the ways that that is inhibited for a whole lot of different kinds of people, right? It's a little sad, actually, to consider that we may take playing outside for granted, but actually I'm not sure a lot of people can really do that on a regular basis. Yeah, totally. Like actually having access to play and actually having access to space to do that. Yeah. And having time. You know, I think you probably get this all the time and and I get it too, which is exactly that. Like people like, why are you trying to make play political? Why are you trying to make the outdoors political? At this point, in terms of what you say that, I would imagine that you say nothing because these people aren't deserving of time. But <laughs> I just wonder, what do you say to that? Well, I, I, you know, when I, if I'm giving a, if somebody invites me in to give a talk and so I have 30, 40, 50 minutes and I weave it, always weave it into the story. At some point I say, this work and talking about the outdoors and representation, all these issues is personal. It's personal, it's political, it's professional, and it's intimate. And for me, I, I could put the question back and say, why isn't it all those things for you? Like, is that a privilege to not make it political. You know, I don't make anything political. It just is. If I show up in a space in the, my skin color and gender and age and all the ways that I'm different, I've been called out for that my entire life, for better or for worse, you know. So, of course, it's political for me. I know it means something. It means something if I'm in a space and I'm the only one who looks like me and I raise my hand to point that out because it's, I know it feels differently, you know, for me to be there. Um, and why am I the only one? And why isn't, I mean, I have to ask the questions of why because I'm asking them not just for the rest of the world, but I'm asking them for myself in order to make sense of myself in that space. The idea that it wouldn't be political, of course it's been political. Everything in this country since the moment that it was quote unquote discovered is political. It's been legalized, codified, commodified, every single thing. And for somebody to say that it is not political, I would push back gently, but I would push back and say that is a privilege on your part that you can ignore that. 
Because perhaps the world, the way that it has worked for you to move around in it, everything makes sense for you because it was created for you and for people who look like you. I'm not saying that that person is a bad or good person. I'm just saying we could really go off on a tangent here. I'm just saying to understand a world that wasn't originally created with you in mind, wasn't legislated with you in mind, uh, you know, we don't have to go anywhere today to look at the most recent news to see how that can play out, right? To understand what right. that means. So when people say, you know, making it political as though that's a bad thing, I don't think it's a bad or good thing. It's just a true thing. Right. The reality is that some of us walk around in bodies that have been politicized and legislated. We were just talking about this yesterday, Faith and I, in relation to the, you know, everything that's going on right now. And we talked about this idea that has also come up on our podcast before, Carolyn, of what power are you willing to give up or not? Or what power are you holding on to? And in this case, we're seeing that there's power that's being held on so tightly, so, so tightly by a few folks for whom this country and this political system and this, you know, economy, everything we are in was made for is exactly what you just said. And it's it's stunning. I mean, it, it relates to the outdoors and it also goes beyond the outdoors, of course. But it's just been fascinating to talk through these kinds of things as we talk about, okay, what does diversification of the outdoors or the environmental movement look like? And and it looks right now like a lot of folks holding on to power that they don't want to give up. and Or people that look like, I mean, I'll, I'll own it, people that look like me, right? Like w- people that for whom things have been made for and made made easy for and constructed for that like don't want to give up that you know that very nice easy path and so that's that and we talked about that with Salema Masakela we talked about that so many guests who have said it's about what power are you willing to willing to give up and what power are you holding on to day to day and that's been a very important question to start asking myself I think and others yeah well and Carolyn you know that question well from Jose our good friend Jose Gonzalez as well who asks it so often well, and I want to say that, you know, power, I, I sometimes, you know, for myself, think a way that power in and of itself gets demonized. And I think, you know, we can be almost a little bit more discerning sometimes about that because we talk about empowerment as well, right? And so we, we use power, we choose to use the word in a very particular way. I think it's important for people, no matter who they are, to feel empowered you know, around their own agency, the choices they make, how they show up to have choice. And yes, I said it like that, you know, about how they want to be in their lives, right? So power in and of itself, you know, I think sometimes when I think about myself saying to people, what power are you willing to relinquish? That I almost think a better question would be for me would be, what are you afraid of losing? So I take take power out of the equation just for a second yeah. and say, what are you afraid of losing? Because it also makes space for that person to consider, you know, there I there's probably things we're all afraid of losing, starting with our lives and then, you know, go from there, right? So, you know, what are you afraid of losing? And then that for me provides something for us to talk about and prote- and potentially, you know, connect over 
about what the loss is that one is afraid of. Because with loss, you know, with that a fear of loss also comes resistance, defensiveness, um, you know, and people use, now we can go back to power, may use their power in ways that are wholly self-serving. You know, power can be a wonderful thing because it can serve so many well, right? That's the thing about power, right? You know, it can serve ourselves, it can serve our communities, you know, it can serve others well. So for me, it's not about necessarily getting rid of the power. It is actually being able to identify what you're afraid of losing. And what would you like to gain? And I, you know, look, I'm not talking in any naive way, but I understand that there's certain kinds of power that can be consolidated. We're, we've just seen it happen with the Supreme Court. I understand that, you know, it can be consolidated in a very particular way and wielded in a very particular way. I just don't want that to be the only way we understand power because I'm thinking about, um, I was just in a mm -hmm. conversation yesterday with a bunch of folks from Iowa on Zoom and they're talking about, bringing me out there for a few days and, you know, all the things that they're trying to do right around the environment, natural resources, questions of social justice. And part of it for me is, you know, as I think about, will I go out there and work with them and be in conversation with them is that, you know, they identify themselves as a majority white state. And, you know, there's a lot of things going on in Iowa, right, <laughs> that they're up against. And also, how do they make space for everyone in the room? Because the thing that I don't want to do in a conversation about power is the thing that has been done to me, which is dismiss, oppress, ignore, erase, which means it, then it requires something else. How do I come into a space where... I will be again in the minority, just, you know, of who I am in the room in an effort to have a conversation about what are people afraid of losing? What would people like to see and gain? You know, what is possible? How do we use our power differently? How do we apply it differently? How do I identify where we think it's at? You know, telling someone that they have power, I realize that part of it is, and there we don't know really the whole picture of their lives. So... Because a person has white skin, I'm not saying that, you know, white supremacy isn't real. Oh, it is real. <laughs> it is real. Right. So I, want to, I don't want anybody to mishear me. And that's about power. But even if I were just to look at whiteness, you know, it's really diverse. Not everybody who has white skin has the same power. We know that that's true, too, for a variety of reasons. So that's why I think power in and of itself, you know, leading the conversation is not going to get us where we want to go. Gosh, yes, yes, it makes so much sense. Because I think what it does is it acknowledges the fear that leads to, you're right, this resistance and this backlash and this fighting and this pushing. And it also shows like, I think exactly what you said, like everyone doesn't have the same amount of power, like every white man, you know, in America isn't walking around with the same amount of power. But I think in the conversations that we have very often, that feels like the accusation that is being flung at people when we talk about white supremacy. And so they resist that notion. Um, but but I mean, what we see all the time is actually like there are many white people in the United States who are being used as pawns in politics right now. Yes, Yes. And I guess part of, you know, if it was all up to me, it would be how do we change what the intention is? The question is, what do we 
you know, we, I don't know, there's something and I still need to think this through, you know, and reading the news, especially in the last week or so, really trying to understand things like conflict. How do we, you know, that, that we're getting all, you know, all this conversation of how much more divided we're, we are supposedly becoming. I actually think a lot of stuff is just getting more revealed. I don't necessarily think a lot of it is new. I think it's just getting revealed in very particular ways. And then we get pitted against each other using unexamined, what am I trying to say? It's like, if we just say that it is about power, we actually deny the complexity and we, I think we also deny ourselves the opportunity to actually change the conversation, to say, you know, this conversation around power <clears throat> gets us so far down the road and then it doesn't get us any farther. You know, I, I, this is my opinion, right? I think that we have to look and understand power in very particular ways in the way it operates in this country. Right. And in thinking about those of us who want something different, to be in relationship differently, I think power is not the primary conversation we, that we should be leading the way. I think there's something else that allows more people to be able to show up as their whole selves. So it allows that person, in this case, when you said if the, you know, not all white, white people have the same person, it allows that person who know, who's looking at their lives and going, I don't feel empowered. You're telling me that I am part of this, mm-hmm. but I don't feel it. Right. Because because here's also what's going on in my life, whether it's economic or some other form of identity, oppression, all the other ways that people as human beings can feel disempowered in their lives. Right. And not have it recognized. You know, I I struggled with this after Trump was elected in 2016 and what I heard from Democrats was essentially like, we didn't realize enough like where poor white people were at or we didn't realize enough. And I I remember feeling like it was like, oh, we didn't work hard enough to include, you know, these white people. And I remember feeling really like upset about that because I was like, well, what about all of us, right? Like that wasn't the only vote that you didn't get, right? There are other communities that, you also didn't work toward. But the the strange, like, hand-wringing that I felt like was happening in that time, which was like, oh, the fault of the Democrats was, like, not working hard enough to include this particular group of white people who became Trump supporters was really, like, confusing and upsetting to me. And at the same time, I still am like, I don't know, you know, I think there's a question of, like, who do we work where Like, I don't know. I don't even have a question here. I think it's just like my frustration with that and at the same time, my empathy and compassion for exactly that. People being told they have power who don't feel empowered, who aren't getting the picket fence, et cetera, that they were told that they would if they worked a certain way. I think about it because I'm like, as a black person in America, there's no such thing as an American dream. You're never sold it. You're never told that Leave it to Beaver might be your life. You're also not told that if you come here, you know, through however difficult it is to come here, um, that your life might somehow be better. You wake up and you learn what this country is like, and then you act accordingly and very often against many barriers related to disenfranchisement. So I think I harbor this weird resentment about 
everyone else being sold an American dream and then being like apologized to when that American dream isn't real. And I'm just sitting here like, well, no one's ever lied to us that there was one. You know, I, there's a quote um, from, <clears throat> I love the comedian George Carlin. And he says, it's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. I just love George Carlin, man. He's wonderful, right? But um, I, I want to say, I want to uh, sort of add to that and say, uh, this is my opinion. I think there are a lot of people who brought it, bought into the American dream, not just people who might identify as white. I actually think black people have bought into it, brown folks. I think uh, there's a lot of different kinds of people who have bought into the American dream, which isn't to say that you know, particularly for black and brown folks waking up in this country, you know, there isn't other things we've had to navigate in order to achieve that. But if, I, if I'm going to keep it real for a second, there are people here today, black and brown, who are still fighting for that very same thing, who believe wholly in the capitalist system as it is, who believe wholly in their right to buy, have, consume, play, do it all in a very particular way. So, we're not, you know, there, that's, it's the complexity of it, right? That is what I guess I'm trying to get at. And I'm wondering if there's a framing, uh, you know, a, a framing of how we might address it that leaves room for people to show up at different places on that web, you know, as opposed to it's either this or that. And instead of the binary conversation, who has power, who doesn't? Who's left out, who isn't, right? There just isn't a lot of space because a lot of us live in the gray area, a lot of us are navigating it, you know, we're much, it's much more fluid than that because our lives change, right? You know, I always love the story of, uh, is it uh, Woody Guthrie who wrote This Land is Your Land? And when you look at the history of that song, This Land is Your Land, which, you know, thousand musicians have sung over time. And he wrote that in response to Irvin Berlin's God Bless America because he just thought, no, that's not what America's about. But he also wrote it. His family at one point was doing really well. And then his father lost everything, you know, in terms of land and they'd lost everything, you know. And so for me, what's so interesting and that changed his point of view. Right. That changed his point of view. And then he could look at the rest of America and see it differently. So there's also something about people's circumstances, regardless where they live in this country, regardless of the color of their skin, that things can change. And I don't know that we are collectively good at allowing for that change to take place. Exciting news from our partners at Merrill, makers of footwear that we love to hit the trails in. Merrill recently launched a recycling program called Retread. So now, no matter how well-loved your favorite Merrill shoes are, they can have a new life. Just send them back where they'll be cleaned up, refurbed, and resold. When your shoes are received, you get $20 off your next purchase. Find out more and shop shoes looking for a second home at merrill.com slash retread. That's M-E-R-R-E-L-L dot com slash retread. For those who are brand new to Merrill, get 20% off your first purchase with the code TRAILAHEAD20. Think about the conversation about John Muir, the conservationist. Right. And so the last <laughs> few years, 
And since 2020, you know, this calling out John Muir to be racist and what does that mean for the Sierra Club and all of these conversations. And in my own work thinking about John Muir and being in conversation with his great-grandson and thinking about him as a human being, the fact of the matter is there is no room allowed for the fact that he changed over time. It doesn't mean he gets off the hook and is not accountable for some of his, you know, the racist remarks, his, the racism that he held at a certain time in his life. But if we do not allow him to evolve, what are we then saying? That if you did, if there was some, a place you held once, that is just who you are frozen in time, which also says something about how we might think about this country. If this country was that way once, are we saying it can never be something else? If we're saying that, then what the hell is a democratic, a democratic project? And what are we saying here? Right. So that's, you know, for me, I think it's navigating because I also get angry about a lot of things. Believe me, I've been saying some things about the Supreme Court this week that nobody will hear <laughs> except myself. Right. Because I'm <laughs> just really yeah. upset with this, yes. uh, this idea of America. I mean, it just makes me crazy. You know, how can we create a more evolved way of having the conversation that allows for people to move because they're going to change because they do. We all do. We all can change our minds. You know, as my friend, the artist, Kaylin Tutri says, the hardest thing to, to do is to change one's own mind. Right. And I believe we can change when people say nobody ever changes. Of course they do. If not, we'd still be in slavery. <laughs> we'd still be, I'd be enslaved. So yes, things do change. Though it seems as though some things stay the same and just mutate into another form of itself, right? I think that happens, but that's also change. I'm not judging it, but just saying that it's there. So I'm wondering how we might meet that change. Because I don't know that we're really good at it. I think that a lot of the resistance is to change. And if you think about some people pushing back on that however they can, we have such a difficult time I think showing up to something new because I think we lack the tools and the ability to actually feel that we will still be affirmed, seen, and held even when the changes are happening. Yeah, and so then we use our power often to disadvantage others because we, we see it that there's limitation. There's only so much and there's so much for me and there can't be enough for me and you. So I'm gonna be watching out for me and mine instead of thinking about the we. I I know. So it actually relates, though, to something that Faith has brought up before. Carolyn, I know you've talked about before the idea of this specifically within the environmental movement, sort of the white fear of replacement or the sense that especially for, I think, older environmentalists or folks that have been in the space for a long time, mostly white, because let's talk about it. The environmental movement is very homogenous, which is, I know, something that is also a foundational component of your writing and your work. So how do we move forward with that change mindset, that progress-oriented mindset, while also including those folks? Or do we need to include those folks? Or or do we say, hey, get on board or we're leaving you behind? What does that look like? Like, what does change look like in the environmental movement to you in the face of this sense of white fear of replacement or a fear of, you know, getting left behind for folks who have, quote unquote, 
paved the way in the environmental movement before. So I'm curious your thoughts on like what that looks like. I think that that the response is fluid. And what I mean by that is, you know, I can say personally, you know, there are po- points in a day when I get upset and I get, but, you know, I'll say things like, you know, get on the train or get out the way, you know, sort of thing. And I actually don't really mean that, you know, because what I believe is that, what I have to believe is that there's space. If my own belief system is, is that, I, if I'm saying to other people that I have to believe there is enough for everyone, I believe that there's a way that we can work together, you know, um, differently, but we can work together, right, to think about each other, you know, and our relationship and our relationship to the earth, right? We can do that, actually. We We may not know all the ways of how to do that well, clearly, and there's some real big leaps we're going to have to make. And I think we can do that. If I'm going to believe that, then it's not about leaving anyone behind. Now, having said that, everyone, I like to believe, also can make their own choice. And when I say get out of the way, what I mean is I would like to keep the door open for you because I would want the door open for me. We can change our minds at any time. You can change your mind. And at the minute you do, I'm right here, right? For you because you changed your mind. And it's like, let's have a different conversation. Let's see what we can do. But I'm not going to hold up the train because you don't want to get on. Because change keeps happening no matter what it is we do. So I want to be on the change train, right? And I want to figure out how to be a good passenger on the, on the change train. I also think that I am really sensitive, having spoken with and worked with so many predominantly white environmental groups, that most of the people I met are really good-hearted people, are people who have, have serious commitment to that non-human nature outside, people who have done the work, people who have big love in their hearts, have spent years putting their time in, putting the effort in. It's genuine. We can talk about white supremacy. We can talk about, you know, the environmental movement being predominantly white historically. All those things are true. The thing about truth is I think truth is complicated and it's complex. And that doesn't diminish the true commitment that so many of them have had. And yes, we can say that it's privileged commitment because they can choose to ignore and not see the experience in this case of BIPOC. But it is not only about folks of color, all the other ways that people are different in the world and people who have been able to, who have chosen to ignore that, I can understand, you know, and hold them accountable for that. But I cannot deny their true commitment. And the only thing that I see is, ooh, how can we shift that true commitment over here? How can we invite you to imply that over here? Because you clearly had the experience, you have the, the heart for it, you have the ability for it. So how can I invite you to bring that expertise, that experience, you know, that knowledge over here to do the thing? That's what I'm interested in. Then that makes room for everyone. Come into a room and say, I'm going to have to say the hard thing for you. But I'm not here. My job here is not to make you feel shame or guilt. If you feel those things, that's on you. That you, you know, you 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 need to work that out. You know, we all have those things. But I don't walk into the room with that intention. I do walk into the room with the intention of laying some things out in hopes that you might hear something that might open up a door in a way 
to get you to consider something you were unwilling to do before. And I believe it can be done without diminishing a single human being. I don't believe in diminishing anyone because the minute I do, I've actually, anything I say after that, excuse expression, is bullshit. Because then when I go and ask you to do the thing, but I can't do the thing, that's the practice. It doesn't mean I get it right all the time, but the practice is how to show up and meet people across their difference and imagine an emergent space or something new. And sometimes that might occur with the last person you thought that might occur with. So yes, we've got, it, we've got a history of an environmental movement that has looked a very particular way. And we are on the cusp of that changing. And we have been for a few years. It's already changing. The fact that the three of us are having this conversation. I've been having this conversation a lot. So I was, uh, there's a new show on PBS coming out next month called America Outdoors with Baratunde Thurston. Baratunde Thurston, a black writer, comedian, pundit. America Outdoors is not unusual. What is unusual is that it is a story about the great outdoors and different parts of this country hosted by a black person. That, my friends, is unusual. There's actually three of those kind of nature shows coming out. That's unusual, right? And, and I talked with him about that because I was like, yeah, this is, this is the conversation. That is something different. I'm not saying we should be satisfied with anything. I think we just have to be open to seeing what becomes possible, how he has conversations of difference with all kinds of people. It's not about agreement, but there is a kind of recognition. There's a kind of space making that allows everyone to show up where they are because I say it all the time, if we think we can get to a better place with just a handful of us, that's the same mistake we've made since the founding of this country. That is also what misused power looks like. So how do we do it differently? So I'm going to stop talking because I could keep going. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, I was sitting here being like chills. Like, yes, that part, that part. It's so hard because I think Personally, for me, I think a lot about my own privilege and how I show up in the world as someone that has a lot of educational privilege, is a light-skinned Black woman. I don't ever want to, like, tone police how other people show up in the world. At the same time, there's so many younger people in movements who I think have less of that patience of being able to see that there is good in some of these legacies that have been around for a really long time. And exactly what you were saying, like there's a real commitment there and to not give people the chance to try to hop on the train, like to, you know, to hold hand a little bit and say, Hey, get on this train. Now you're right. Like if they're like, I got you, I'll get on this train with you. Now, if they don't want to get on the train, we can't hold the train up. But I, I just love that analogy and I really appreciate you extending that I mean love really and community to say like hey we have a shared goal and we can go there together because I think sometimes I personally feel like I want to extend that love as well because I feel like you're right we need everyone we need as many people who who have this shared goal or who can get on board to this common vision to um keep moving forward as this you know beloved community and but I I do think we run up against all kinds of difficulty, including just like a lack of patience because people have been waiting and fighting for so long. 
And Faith, I want to say, you know, in recognition, I heard you say, you know, young people, younger people. And in some cases, there's a degree of impatience. And I think that I respect the impatience. What I respect that's going to be different is that for a 20-something person coming up now, since to, who was perhaps born in 2000 or the early 2000s, it's, that's a very different time to be born in than the time I was born in, right? I'm in my early 60s. Mm-hmm. So I have to respect that that impatience in part is going to be born from, you know, having the chance to look back at a longer history than perhaps I had to look back at, right? It doesn't make it better or worse, you know, but to understand uh, there's been a longer period of time coming to this moment. And also because of the internet, because of social media, the amount of information one can get has tripled, you know, compared to what I would get, you know, when I was growing up in the same age, even in the eighties and my twenties and thinking it's just so much more information. So I can kind of respect the impatience. What I want to offer is that You know, there's a way within which someone told me once that as human beings, we tend to think in 100-year increments. If we're lucky, we get to live 100 years, you know, give or take a few years. But if we think about change in terms of geologic time, that's 10,000 years. And what I think it does is not say, oh, so, you know, take your time with it. That's not what I'm saying. Oh, you know, we can slow down. What I'm saying is to understand it is not simply about it happening in my lifetime, but it is important that I choose how to be present in my lifetime as part of that change. I don't even know what's going to happen in a hundred years because in a hundred years I won't be here, but I have to still believe that something will be carried on. There's going to be change. It's going to be continually happening. And so I have to determine when my impatience whether no matter what my age may be getting in the way of serving a larger intention that I have. You know, it's not like I never get impatient. Of course I get impatient. And sometimes I make a decision because of that impatience that doesn't necessarily serve the original intention I set because the impatience, you know, the impatience becomes the, the priority. I think that I believe in creative choice So when I think about activism from a creative perspective, you know, I think people got to try whatever they're feeling, you know, because people are going to be feeling things that I don't necessarily feel or even understand. And I have to respect that. I do think that there is no one way. And I think there's no one way for anybody. I don't care if you're old, young, who you is and where you live. There is no one way. And the minute for me, anybody or any group says that there is, you know, my hackles are going to go up because I said the minute somebody says that, that's old school. And that's not old school in the good way. You know, that's the way of trying to get direct everybody in a particular way. Instead of thinking about how there's space for everybody to show up exactly where they're at, bringing their gifts to bear upon the current situation. I also want to say one other thing that there I wrote down here that for me, there's a real difference between friction and tension. And somebody reminded me once that Tension, you know, we often think that we want to dispel any tension in the room, and that tension is simply energy. And so if you think about a a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, right, in order for it to break out of its cocoon, there has to be tension there for it to be able to break out. So I don't think tension is something for us to ignore or erase. I think tension is something we need to embrace. 
and to understand what it means to stand in that energy because there's potential of redirecting that energy. There's potential for seeing what is in that tension that we might learn from. Tension is energy. So that means there's some crackling going on. Like, oh, it's popping off. I don't want to be standing in a place where nothing's popping off. Like, I want to be where the energy is because that's where the possibilities live, which for me is different than friction. I think friction when things are really rubbing up against each other, but it ain't like there ain't nothing happening. It's just a lot of uh, pushback and friction and anger and all that stuff boils up. And I think that's something else entirely. I think they operate together, but I don't think they're the same thing. Laura Bayer Collective, we need funding. We need financial funding. And um, and that's always a need for us. And that's always a need for a lot of organizations, including Young Women Who Crash. We need funding. Organizations like these not only need financial resources, they need volunteers, mentors, gear, and more. When we were in Far Rockaway, I met a pro surfer who supports Laura Bea by donating his surf instruction hours through his own organization. Patagonia Action Works helps connect your specific skill set with organizations that need them the most. To get connected and support La Rubea and other organizations, visit patagonia.com slash actionworks. is the debrief. We didn't explicitly say it early in this episode, but we spoke with Dr. Finney just days after the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade occurred. This decision dismantled years of legislation protecting a woman's legal right to choose to have an abortion. Like many in this country, I think all three of us were in a really emotionally raw place. Our country has been feeling so divided and so violent for the past few years, particularly with police brutality and school shootings and just so much happening in the world that feels like we're past the time where we should have a solution. And so when we asked Dr. Finney what she was thinking about, she took us with her to a really raw place. And I think she encapsulated a lot of what we were feeling too, through her lens, which includes 20 more years of wisdom than what Addie and I have. So rather than a debrief this week, we wanna leave you with this, a part of the conversation that we were really grateful to be able to have. We hope it gives you something a sense of being seen, being in community, and an acknowledgement of just how hard it often feels every day to just try to be who you are. Wow, this is such a, you know, some days you'd ask me that question and I, I know exactly what to go to. And, and lately I've been a little... Uh, unsure because I've been thinking about, you know, how to, how am I moving forward and continuing to do this work? Am I doing it in a way that serves? I've been thinking a lot about, you know, uh, I talk about a lot how I am on my own, you know, I, I sort of on my own, I don't have a partner and kids and that's not meant to be like a sad story. It's just kind of, you know, where I kind of how my, the trajectory of my life in the last 10, 15 years, as I sort of focused on work and how does that serve? I've been thinking about, um, 
the, the last two years since George Floyd was murdered and Christian Cooper had his skin weaponized against him, so many more opportunities I've gotten to be able to show up as my whole self in this work that I want to do creatively. So just thinking about, I don't know, I'm thinking about a whole lot of things. I'm thinking about, uh, I don't know, the next, you know, writing the book I've always wanted to write, which is what I'm trying to work on, which is more of the the memoir version of talking about these issues. The the All the diaries I kept for five years when I was backpacking, but didn't have the confidence or the clarity to write about that before... This is, you can see, I, I don't know, I'm having a strange, the past few days have been strange. I think, you know, with the, new, with the news in the United States, I've been thinking a lot about freedom. I think about it all the time anyway, and my own sense of freedom and liberation, you know, and independence, the th- those three things probably being most important to me, like how in my own life, just speaking for myself, right, and, and what that looks like and how that's informed my choices and watching the ways within which you know, potentially people, others can choose to limit those freedoms. Um, And then thinking about what am I willing and able to do? If you were to ask me, what's the freest I've ever felt in my life? And I will tell you, I can always say the same thing. I don't even have to hesitate. was when I was 32 years old, because when I was 32, that's when I, I had been, I'd done that backpacking trip around the world. I'd spent six months about eight months in East Africa and Southern Africa. And at that point, I was back here in the United States thinking, I'm finally, I am going to leave the acting. I'm not going to do acting anymore. I've been, I said, I'm just going to save all my money. I packed my few belongings I had in some boxes and took them to my parents' house. They still lived in New York at that point. And I'd saved my money. I said, well, I'm going to go to Nepal and stay there for a while. I don't know, maybe I have enough money. We'll see how long, how many months I can last. I don't know what I'm going to do there. I'm going to just see what happens. And, you know, a privilege to do that. But I wasn't rich or anything. I had to save my money. It took me a year and a half. I had to, I moved back in with my parents for a while, worked two jobs. I mean, you know, I was, I just saved every penny. But I packed everything in a, a big pack, back, a small backpack. But I remember getting on the plane because at that moment I had recently gone through a divorce and the papers had gone through. And so that was done. I had, cleared everything out with my agents. So I no longer had those connections that I was responsible to. I didn't have any debt because I never had any debt until I went back to school. And so I didn't owe anybody any money. I had no romantic relationship anymore that I was responsible to. I didn't, you know, I had no apartment. I had everything I needed in two backpacks with a bunch of travelers checks. I didn't have any credit cards and I had a plane, a round trip plane ticket. And I remember getting ready, going to the airport and saying there was a, all the fear and trepidation was there, but I was also the freest I have ever been. Anything was possible. And I understood that in such a deep way. I mean, I I caught it like catching something in the air and I went, I may never have this again. You know, and I'm not saying that, you know, is it about being without responsibility? Because I believe that we, I am responsible at every moment for every interaction and who I am and my own breath and all those things. It's, it wasn't about that. It was, I was suddenly free from um, all the other things that were defining me, my job, the money that I owed, all the stuff that was around me that I had become confused about how to navigate, that I had allowed to define me, you know, 
to, to tell me this is how I'm supposed to be. This is how I need to be in order to survive. Um, forget about thriving. Here's how you have to show up. I had been in a business and acting in the 80s that tried to tell me this is what I need to look like. This is what you need to weigh. This is who you need to be in order to mean something. This is the value you have in this world. And this is the value that you don't have. And I have been told that over and over. I Even in the 80s, I stopped reading fashion magazines. I got rid of having a scale because I got tired of weighing myself every time I ate a piece of food because I said, if I gain a pound, I'm not going to be worth so much anymore. I was, th- I was tired of thinking about what I look like, how, whether I straightened my hair or not. I just got tired. And instead of blaming everyone else, I started to blame myself for I must not be worthy. I must not be worthy. Oh, yeah, I was adopted, so I was given up. So, yeah, I definitely must not be worthy. And I hit a place in my life that I was tired of telling myself that I am not worthy. So I needed to free all the noise around me as best as I could do to imagine and taste what that freedom would be like and how I could be responsible for that, that I could be empowered to have that for myself even if only for a brief moment. So I've been thinking about that. And what does it look like now where I'm in a really different place? What does it mean to be at an age where I have to start thinking about the end, but I don't want to do that. I just want to be present in this moment in a very particular way. What does it mean to think about the fact that I feel responsible and I want to be to all kinds of people as I put my ideas and thoughts and work with all kinds of people out in the world? How can I be responsible to all those relationships because I'm overwhelmed because I'm just one person and I can't answer to everybody, though I want to be able to do that? That is what's up for me right now. And I didn't even know I was going to say all that, but I did. Is to think about freedom and liberation. Does that evolve? Is it just an idea? Is it something beyond what our ancestors were looking for? When I think about Harriet Tubman and others who talk about freedom, I feel like I understand it. I understand what they were going for. But what does it mean for me now? Am I just enslaved in a different way? Like, how am I free? Because I'm still caught up in certain ways of thinking that I have to be in order to be worthy, in order to show up, um, in order to be seen. Still wanting to be seen and affirmed and accepted and loved. Damn, does that mean I can never really be free? Oh, Lord, I didn't mean to go there, but there it was. No, I'm, I mean, I'm so grateful that you did go there and share that with us because I think we feel these ways and it's not polite to say that, oh, everyone thinks I'm this way, but I actually feel this way. Or like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do and what is the tension between freedom and responsibility and how am I allowed to be in the world versus how do I want to be in the world? Is, is there you know, people calling me irresponsible because of the way that I'm like, choose to live my life. Like, I just, I think that there, you know, for stories, there's always like, what is the universal truth that has a specific resonance, right? And I think like, what you shared with us has a universal truth in it. So I just thank you for, as always, coming from the heart with the truth. Thank you (laughs) for taking me there, (laughs) for creating the space 
and inviting me in. I'm like, oh man, I kind of went there. Lordy Lord. Okay. And maybe that's where a lot of us are. Maybe that's because I'm feeling it too. You know, just the, it's the turmoil, the turmoil that is really loud right now. It is just the noise is all around and uh, how to show up and be upright in that. You know, I'm thinking about, I, I want to remain upright. I want to remain engaged. I want to remain hopeful. I want to remain resilient. And I want to support others to be able to do the same. So thinking about what that demands and requires. Gosh, even re-listening to that definitely reminds us of where we were during that conversation and where we still are to some extent. And it also, though, gives us permission to be there because there's something important about acknowledging that emotion, too, and letting yourself feel what you feel. We believe in working hard to try to make a better world. And we also know that there has to be some rest and there has to be some kindness to yourself and to others in order to keep trying at that every day. So thank you for joining us on the trail ahead. Don't forget to check out the links in our bio to follow along on the work of Dr. Finney. Also, please check us out on Instagram to e-meet her through our short video profile that we created earlier this year on the High Line on Lenape lands in New York City. Thank you so much. The Trail Ahead is created and hosted by us, Faith E. Briggs and Addie Thompson. It's produced by Anna Agogo at Adode Media. Christina Stella is our editor and sound designer. Podcast art is by Shar Tuiasawa. Check her out on Instagram at Punky Aloha. And special thanks to the amazing teams at Merrill and Patagonia. Thank you also to our team on the visual side. Our videos are filmed by Tyler Wilkinson Ray, Alex Igadbashian, and Matt Hayes, and are edited by Jillian Sorrell at Cartel TV. Our still images are captured by Fred Gorris and Caroline Watley. For updates and additional links, visit trailaheadpodcast.com, where you can also leave us a voicemail. If you like what you hear, please send us a note via Instagram at, at trailahead underscore podcast and subscribe. Please also consider checking out our Patreon at patreon.com slash the trail ahead. Thank you for listening and for spreading the word. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend. Don't forget to check out the video profiles we make about each of our guests. And to all of our incredible guests, thank you. You make the world better. See you next episode.